Good morning, church. I've heard it said that there are only two constants in life. Do you know what they are? That's right, death and taxes. Now, of course, there is some truth to that statement, right? But there are also other things that I've found in life that we can expect. Things that fall into certain patterns and rhythms. Anyone that's been around long enough knows that certain things in life have a certain rhythm to it, a certain cycle in life. Many of you experienced this in a very tragic way this past year. Uh, Back in November of 2022, the Philadelphia Union Major League Soccer players went all the way to the championship and played against Los Angeles. Philadelphia lost in an overtime shootout, which I suppose is about as exciting as soccer ever gets. (laughs) Now, within the same 24 hours, Philadelphia fans know that the Phillies lost the World Series to the Astros after getting all the way to those championship games as well. Now, you know where this is going, right? Life has certain patterns. By February, Philadelphia sports fans should have known what was coming. You should have been able to anticipate the pattern in life. The, The Eagles made it all the way to the Super Bowl only to lose by three points to the Chiefs. Go to the championships and lose. Go to the championships and lose. Go to the championships and lose. After a while, you kind of expect that rhythm. Now, either way, Philadelphia fans are going to burn down the city. So whether they win or lose, (laughs) that's kind of the rhythm, the pattern. Life has other patterns, though. I've I've probably made about half enemies in this room right now with that opening illustration. Uh, Life has other patterns beyond just Philadelphia sports fans. If I just pay off my car loan, you know, I know that my roof is going to start leaking shortly after. Uh, If I finally get a night off, I know that one of my kids is going to fall sick, and that'll be where I spend my evening. If I come to an event at Riverstone Church, I know I'm going to be fed well. I mean, there are certain patterns that you can expect in life. Last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 9, and we saw a pattern, one of the great patterns of Scripture. We have a couple ushers that are willing to give out some Bibles. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and they're happy to give you one. This is our gift to you. You can take it home. Uh, It's yours. We believe it's that important that you have and own a Bible. But Nehemiah 9 is one of the longest prayers in Scripture, and like many other prayers that we've seen in Ezra and Nehemiah, it is saturated with biblical language. Saturated with biblical language. Nearly every verse of Nehemiah 9 is either a direct quote or an allusion to some other passage in Scripture. But hopefully what you saw last week as we studied this chapter was a pattern. Did you notice the pattern of Nehemiah 9? Here's what it was. I'll remind you. God's great faithfulness, mankind's great failure. Over and over again. God is faithful. We are sinners. Over and over again in that chapter. Nehemiah begins, Nehemiah 9 begins with this great focus in creation. God created the heavens and the earth. And it moves quickly to God's covenant with Abraham, then the exodus from Egypt, parting the Red Sea, God making a covenant with Moses and the Israelites, his provision for the people in the wilderness, God is faithful. But then what happens? The people are unfaithful. They stiffen their neck and refuse to obey God. But God is faithful to his covenant. The Bible says in Nehemiah 9 that he is ready to forgive. He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
And how do the Israelites respond to that love? They make a golden calf and worship it instead of God. God is faithful. His people are unfaithful. God leads his people with this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire by night, and he sustains them for 40 years in the wilderness. He provides for them manna. He conquers the kings of Sion and Og and shows them what victory can look like. He brings them into the promised land. God is faithful. And how do his people respond? Nehemiah 9 says that they were disobedient and they rebelled against God. They rejected the law. They killed God's prophets. They blasphemed their Redeemer. And so God sent them into exile as punishment and discipline for their sin. But even there, God was faithful. When they repented, God brought them back into that land. That's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people coming back into the promised land after being exiled for 70 years. But you have this very clear pattern in Nehemiah 9. Faithful, unfaithful. Faithful, unfaithful. As the great theologian Mr. Miyagi once said, wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. God makes a covenant with Israel. Israel breaks the covenant with God. God makes a covenant with Israel. Israel breaks the covenant with God. It is just as constant, if not more, than death and taxes. Life is a cycle of rebellion and repentance and God's faithfulness. In fact, remember what began that great prayer of Nehemiah 9. Let me refresh your memory. Nehemiah 9, verse 2. Here's what instigated this whole time of confession. It says, The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. You see, they gather to pray and repent because yet again they have to separate themselves from these foreigners that they've intermarried with. Another mass divorce happens in Ezra or Nehemiah chapter 9. And it's the same problem that we've seen in Ezra chapter 9. Remember there, the Israelites married these idol-worshiping pagans and they drew their hearts away from God. In Ezra 9, they intermarry, they pray, they repent, and they renew their commitment to God. And here again we see in Nehemiah 9, they pray, they intermarry, they pray, they repent, and they renew their commitment to God. And sadly enough, this isn't even the last time that we are going to see that particular sin in the book of Nehemiah, even though we're almost at the end. In fact, Nehemiah 9 ends like this. Look at the last verse of Nehemiah 9. It says, Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now, given all that we know about this book, all that we know after just reading these 38 verses from Nehemiah chapter 9 that shows a very specific pattern, God is faithful, mankind is rebellious. God is faithful, mankind is rebellious. Given that pattern, what do we expect to happen next? Now, don't get me wrong. Nehemiah 10, we're going to read today, is a great moment in Scripture. Nehemiah 8, the people read the law, they do a Bible study. Nehemiah 9, they recognize their sin because of that and they repent. Nehemiah 10, now the people are going to renew their covenant commitments with the Lord. This is a great chapter in scripture and it's how Bible study is supposed to work. The word of God should lead the people of God to repentance and spiritual renewal. That's what's supposed to happen. But what do we expect to happen next. 
Here's what I'm saying. Careful readers who have been following this cycle of Nehemiah 9, they know what's coming. Even if we don't see it happen yet, we are going to keep it in mind as we read Nehemiah 10 today. Because the failure of God's people is sure to come after their covenant commitment. So let's start reading the first paragraph of Nehemiah 10. And I thought it'd be fun to read this out loud together as a church today, okay? So Nehemiah 10. Now, I wanted to give you, you know, a taste of what we pastors have been going through reading these names. Do you want to read it out loud? You want to try for it? Like four of you? Okay. Yeah. You, You don't really have to. You know, that's the other constant in Ezra and Nehemiah, isn't it? The names. That's the other thing that we see over and over again. Somebody asked me last week, how do you know how to pronounce all those names in this book? And my answer is is very simple. If you read it with confidence, nobody knows that you're wrong when you're pronouncing those names. And who's going to correct the the Bible professor pastor on how to pronounce Maasiah and all that? So you can read it out loud if you want, but let me read it to you. Nehemiah 10, verses 1 to 27. Now on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mejimam, Meaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these were the priests, and the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and also their brothers Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelatah, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Benini, uh, Benu, Beninu, almost got me that one, the leaders of the people, Parish, Pehath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Asgad, Babai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Adin, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bazai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezer, Meshezebel, Zadak, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Holohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rahum, Hashabna, Measeah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, and Be'enah. Now, I, I understand that list. You don't have to play. It's okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. Again, I just read it with confidence. And, you know, um, I, I, I get that list sounds like a bunch of weird foreign names to you, doesn't it? It does to me too. But I want you to contextualize it for a moment, just like we've been doing with these other lists. This is a list of people who signed a document publicly committing to a covenant with the Lord. They were publicly committing to renew their relationship with God as a community of believers. What if this list were made up of people from Riverstone Church? Would it catch your attention then? Would it sound more familiar? Instead of Sariah and Malkijah and Meaziah, if the list read the Andersons and the Bowers and the Costellos and Evans and the Godwins, suddenly this list comes alive, doesn't it? Far from being a dead list of weird names to the original readers, this list was a cause of celebration and spiritual revival. It was an exciting time for the people. These were people who were moved by the word of God, 
who prayed a prayer of repentance from the heart, who signed a document publicly committing to a new covenant with God. Nearly all of these names we have seen before in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. By the way, you might read a list like that and wonder, where's Ezra in this list? We see Nehemiah's name, but, but where's Ezra? It seems kind of funny that he would be left out. But the answer is actually pretty simple. This list is the names of the heads of each family. And back in Ezra 7, I'm sure you all memorized Ezra's genealogy there. You put those verses to your heart. We see that Ezra was the son of Sariah. And Sariah finds his name on this list in verse 2. So most likely, Ezra is kind of part of this list by his family, even though if he's not mentioned by name himself. But each name on this list functions as both a testimony to God's work in the people's hearts, and it worked to keep them accountable to the covenant that they're making. By the fact that they sign this publicly, committing, that keeps them accountable to the other names on this list. If next week Shebaniah is, is off canoodling with a Canaanite, they can hold him accountable to what he's doing. You know, hey, Sheba, you made a commitment to the Lord publicly. What are you doing with this Canaanite woman? It was a system of accountability. It was a testimony to God's work through his word. It was a sign of the people's repentance and spiritual renewal. Now, what does a list like this teach us? What's the takeaway value from reading a list of 80 names? Well, there's a continual need for believers to renew their commitment to the Lord too. We need renewal commitments and ceremonies like this. We need regular times of, of worship and reflection on our covenant with God. In fact, that's why we have church every week. We need this rhythm of life, that weekly refresher. We need a reminder to come together in a time of corporate worship and accountability. How quickly we fall into sin when we neglect to meet together regularly. We need monthly celebrations of the Lord's Supper together. Once a month, we reflect on the new covenant. We eat the bread and we drink the juice to remind ourselves of the body of Christ broken for us, of the blood of Christ shed for our sins. That's an important part of the rhythm of a Christian life. This is why we have yearly occasions and celebrations as a church. Every Christmas season, we, we celebrate and reflect on the incarnation of Christ. Every Easter, we celebrate and reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his death as well. Once a year, we have a membership meeting here at Riverstone where we consider what our commitment to each other looks like as a local church body. It is appropriate for believers to celebrate these occasions together, to renew our commitment to one another and to the Lord in cycles, weekly, monthly, yearly. I know a church back in Michigan that's getting ready to celebrate their one-year anniversary together. One year ago, they formed through great trial and testing, and the Lord has been good. They're getting ready to celebrate together. And that's not only appropriate, it's needed for believers to reflect on what God has done, and to renew our covenant commitments both individually and corporately. So we need to do that on a regular basis. Over 80 men signed this document on behalf of their families. But what exactly were they agreeing to do? What were their specific commitments in this passage? There are four things we're going to see that they commit to, four specific things that they use as examples of, canoe, of, of renewal commitment to the Lord in their covenant testimonies. 
The first three commitments are found in that first paragraph after the list of names. Look at verses 28 to 31. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or holy day. We will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So the people make this agreement to follow the Lord, follow his law. They even call down curses upon themselves if they disobey or don't keep the word faithfully. And let's be honest, they don't have a great track record with this sort of thing, do they? Ezra 9, there's a huge intermarriage crisis. They break the commands of God. And what's strange to me is that the first one of their commitments here in verse 30 is that they agree that they won't intermarry anymore with pagans. Israelites will only marry Israelites. Believers will only marry believers. And they don't have a great track record of holding that covenant commitment. Nehemiah 9, there's another crisis just a few decades after Ezra 9. And yet here they are recommitting not to intermarry once again. I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of confidence this one's going to work out for them. When I was a freshman in Bible college, I remember our first semester in the dorm, all the single guys, there were about 40 guys in a dorm, and all the single guys got together and they made this commitment with each other. We are not going to date anyone during our first year of Bible college. We are, we are only going to focus on Jesus we're not going to let girls distract us from our mission to love Jesus. <laughs> Out of all the guys that made that commitment, only one guy, maybe the guy that just said amen, I don't know, <laughs> only one guy was able to keep it. And we're, we're kind of pretty sure that he just wasn't able to get a date. You know, like that's what was <laughs> happening there. But I, I look at a passage like this, I appreciate the people in Nehemiah 10 and their commitment to marriage. They realize we've messed up in the past, we don't have a good track record with this, we want to renew our commitment together and do better in the future. That's a really good thing. Quite frankly, all of our marriages need this from time to time. Marriages need vow renewal ceremonies to be good and healthy for us. They need not even those 20-year ceremonies, but almost a daily, weekly reminders of the commitment that we've made to each other. That's healthy for a marriage. Even just going away, getting out on dates, doing something special for an anniversary, those are healthy cycles in relationships. Some of us need to make that kind of a commitment again, even today. Our hearts are drawn to the pagan idolatry of this world. Just as much as they were drawn to these pagan foreigners, our hearts are drawn to the pagan idolatry of this world. Our phones, our TVs, our social media draws our heart from God away from our spouses at times. You, you want some free advice from Uncle Pastor Brian? You want to transform your marriage? Turn off your phone when you get home. Turn off your phone, turn off your TV, 
Quit canoodling with the Canaanites and start canoodling with your spouse. You will transform your marriage. The Israelites vow to recommit and uphold the sanctity of marriage. Their second commitment is found in the first half of verse 31. Look at verse 31 again. It says, As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or holy day. So they also recommit to keep the Sabbath. They're not going to buy or sell anything on the Sabbath. They're going to go full-on Chick-fil-A on a holy day once a week. I should probably take a minute to explain something here. The Sabbath was a holy day. It was a day of rest. It was a day of worship. God created the world, the Bible says, in six days. And on the seventh day, he ceased from all his labor. He rested, and he declared the seventh day a Sabbath. Part of God's covenant with the Israelites was keeping that Sabbath day holy. It was one of the Ten Commandments. That means they weren't supposed to buy or sell anything on that day. They weren't supposed to do any normal work. It was a day off, but it was a day to have a special focus on the Lord, a day to come together as a community and worship. It was not a day of suffering, but a day of celebration together. The Israelites had trouble keeping this day. One of the greatest commandments of Scripture, you would think that this is one of the easiest commandments to follow. Stop working. And yet, I think you and I would recognize in our culture and society today, we have struggle with this too, don't we? Stop working? What does that even mean? In our culture, I mean, we value work, 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 productivity. All of our moments are filled with something. Even those quiet moments in your life, you pull out a phone or something like that to kind of busy your mind during those moments. Our moments are filled with sports games and music practices and streaming content online and even community and church fellowships. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But we need to learn to stop and rest from them sometimes. Some people think that the busier you are, the, the more spiritual you are. But you know what? Sometimes busyness can be a form of idolatry. It's a form of idolatry. It's an idolatry of self. If I can't get this done, everything's going to fall apart. It's a refusal to recognize the value of the people that God has put in your life around you. It's a refusal sometimes to trust that God is going to keep the world rotating even if you're not up there trying to spin it. I heard something a while back that's always stuck with me. Someone said, every graveyard is filled with indispensable people. Every graveyard is filled with indispensable people. You think that you're indispensable in your area of life, whether your family or your job or whatever it is. And yet not one of us in this room is irre irreplaceable in that sense. We make our necessity an idol. And busyness results from it. And busyness becomes an idol. Our need to be needed is idolatry. But Sabbath is all about taking a day of rest from all the normal busyness of life to reflect on God's goodness, to worship him together. For the Jewish people, there were strict regulations attached to the Sabbath day. You couldn't buy or sell. You couldn't work. You couldn't gather wood on the Sabbath day to make a fire. There were strict regulations for them and strict penalties attached to those regulations. For God's people in the New Testament, Sabbath looks a little bit different. 
Romans 14.5 tells us that one person regards one day above another and another person regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. That means that we're not bound to the same kind of Sabbath laws that the Israelites were bound to. And yet Sabbath is rooted in creation, not the law. God began it before the law was created, which means I would encourage you to take your Sabbath. Take a day off of work. Rest from your normal activities. Make church a priority in life. So the Israelites make this covenant to renew their commitment to marriage. They commit to Sabbath. And the third thing they commit to is found in the last half of verse 31. Let's read that one one more time too. Last half of verse 31. It says, We will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. This is kind of a natural extension of the Sabbath day. The next level up. Every seven days, the Israelites were to keep the Sabbath, but the Old Testament law also says that every seven years, they were to keep a Sabbath year. Now, if you think the Sabbath day is cool, wait till you hear about this one. On the Sabbath year, they don't work their fields, they just let their crops grow wild. They just trust that the Lord is going to provide for them instead of going to work in the fields every day. It gives the land a Sabbath rest, and it forces the people to up their level of trust in God for their livelihood. It's a time of forgiving debts. Everyone forgave each other's debts. That's pretty cool. It's a time of um, freeing slaves or indentured servants. It was a year of Sabbath for everyone. Last week, you heard from Don Cheney about the two sabbaticals coming up for our pastors, Pastor Austin and Pastor Jeremy. In just a couple of weeks, Pastor Austin will take a short sabbatical, and then in the summer, Pastor Jeremy will take a bit of a longer sabbatical. That is so helpful and needed. I wish I had that in my former churches as a full-time pastor. Sometimes we need to take extended periods of time off from the normal flow of life if you can manage that. Now, I recognize I'm, I'm preaching to a group of people that have a very different schedule than I do. Maybe you own a business, maybe you work for somebody and don't have the privilege of taking off a month or two months or the summer. I understand that. And if that's the case, what I would encourage you to do is to think about your vacations sabbatically. Think about how you can use that time to fulfill that sabbatical principle. I remember telling my last church, who didn't give me sabbatical, but I remember telling them that any bit of vacation time they give me, I'm going to take every hour of it every year. I would use up every hour. My kids are young once. I get one shot at them. I'm not sacrificing my days to pretend to be spiritual in front of all of you. I'm using that time to rest and reflect and renew myself spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. Those days are helpful for my family, Frankly, they're helpful for the church to avoid becoming totally dependent on one person. And I would go on those vacations and turn off my phone. I would not check my email. I would turn off life for a week and just focus on the Lord and my family. I would encourage you to do the same. I would urge you to do the same. You might need to get creative with how you apply some of these principles to your situation, but don't be afraid of resting. It is good, it is healthy, and it is spiritual. So the people agree to renew their commitment to marriage. 
They agree to renew their commitment to Sabbath day and Sabbath year. And then the fourth obligation they put upon themselves is found in verse 32 all the way to the end of the chapter. So I'm going to read the whole rest of the chapter here, starting in verse 32. They say, We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, so that they might bring it to the house of our God, according to our father's households, at fixed times annually, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. And that they might bring the first fruits of our ground, and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually, and to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, as it is written in the law, for the priests who are ministering to the house of our God. We will also bring in the first fruit of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, and when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. Now there's a lot of detail there, but what this all boils down to is this. They are committed to tithing to God. They commit to a tithe. And just about every verse that we just read lists another item that they're committing to tithe to the Lord. We're going to tithe our first crops to God. We're going to tithe the firstborn cattle. We're even going to tithe the bakery products that we make in our house. We're going to give a yearly third of a shekel to the Levites so that they can keep the temple going. You know, today it's a little bit different, right? If we want to give to the church, we typically give money. Most of you don't collect a tenth of your chickens and a tenth of your sheep and bring them in and put them in the offering plate. Um, I don't want to start a new trend here. I'm just observing things. We tithe money. Well, back then, they didn't always deal with a whole lot of cash, did they? Their cash was sheep and fruit and crops and bakery products. So each season, they would take a tenth of what they had, they would bring it to the temple, and they would tithe that product to the Lord. That's what tithe mean, means, by the way. The, the word literally just means tenth. They would take a tenth and give it to God. Now, there are differences today and back then with how we give, the way the Israelites gave and the way we do. For them, it was a tenth, and for them, it was more like a tax than it was a free will offering. You had to give it. It was a requirement, an obligation to give this tithe. And that tithe would help the Levites do what they were doing, help the priests do what they were doing, help upkeep the temple. Now today, at least in this church, no one is forcing you to give. No one's checking your bank account and making sure you're giving a tenth. If you want to give, give. I've noticed we don't make a great big deal about it. We don't want to make it seem like we are here just to take your money. We're not. But we also don't want to give you the impression that this is unimportant before God either. It is important to give to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 give Christians today a few helpful principles for giving. God no longer asks for a tithe, a tenth. That was part of the Old Testament law. 
Today, a tithe is probably a good starting place for the Lord. But the principles in the New Testament is that we should give proportionately to what the Lord has given us. If I only make $20,000 a year, maybe a tithe is all I can afford. If I make $200,000 a year, I might be inclined and probably am able to give a little bit more than a tithe. Proportionate giving is the principle in the New Testament. It should be proportionate to what the Lord has given us. It should be willing. No one's forcing you to give. It should be generous, even sacrificial at times. And it should be done joyfully with a great heart of celebration. So it's a bit different today than it was back then, but many of the principles remain the same. But there is something I think you should know about this last commitment the Israelites make. Something I think is pretty significant here and has significance for the rest of the New Testament as well. Some of these tithing commitments that they make are over and above what the Lord actually required in the law. If you go and read the Old Testament law, you'll see that what they are imposing on themselves is more than what the Lord imposes upon them. The law requires the firstborn and the first fruits. They go far beyond that with what they regulate and what they require of themselves. Now, there are two ways to look at that. On the one hand, praise the Lord. They are so eager to serve the Lord that they are willing to go above and beyond what God requires. It shows their zeal to do what is right. But you know what the other side of that coin is? How much sense does it make for a group of people to add extra laws to the laws that they can't keep already? Nehemiah 9, God is faithful, the people are unfaithful. Wax on, wax off. That continual cycle of sin and rebellion does not give me much hope that these Israelites are able to keep the additional law when they can't even keep the regular law. Now, to add to that, this might be where some of the tendencies of the Pharisees of the New Testament began to creep in. Remember the Pharisees of the New Testament? They, they tried to put a hedge around the law of God. If the law said, don't work on the Sabbath, the Pharisees sat down and they said, okay, let's define that and then let's add a much more to that so that we don't accidentally break it. Now, that kind of thinking usually stems from good motives. We don't want to break God's law. That's good, right? And yet the problem becomes when those extra man-made laws become a substitute for God's law or when we elevate those man-made laws to the same level as God's law. And we could pick on the Pharisees and we could pick on those in Nehemiah 9, but we see this in churches all the time. The way we always do things becomes the way that we ought to do things. And that can become a very dangerous thing. I was in a church once where pastors were required to wear ties whenever they preached. Praise the Lord, I'm not in that church anymore. Hate ties. You had to preach in a tie. Now, if you didn't preach in a tie, you'd be in trouble. Certain people in the church would get upset. They would think you were disrespecting the Lord. Now, why is that? Can you show me the Bible verse for that one? But that rule, I'm sure, stemmed from good motives, didn't it? People wanted to honor the Lord. They wanted to show respect to the Lord with how they dressed. Great. Praise the Lord. And I'm not knocking those of you who have a tie on right now. If that's, if that's where your heart is at and your conscience, praise the Lord. The problem becomes 
when we take that man-made law and elevate it to the place of God's law and impose it upon others. That's when it becomes problematic. Now, this is not to say that all rules outside of Scripture are bad rules or bad at all. Speed limits are good laws, aren't they? Uh, Our requirement to have volunteers in church be kids safe that work with children, that's a good law, isn't it? Rules are good and they are helpful, even rules that are not found in the Bible. But we want to be careful not to elevate that to the same level as Scripture. That's where Pharisaism begins to creep into God's people. And it was foolish to begin with because it was born of a people who couldn't keep the normal law, and yet they were imposing upon themselves extra laws. And that's really what I want to leave us here thinking about. We're not going to return to this thought until the very end of the book of Nehemiah, until Nehemiah 13, the last chapter. We're going to see how all these laws work out for the people of God. But what I was suggesting in the beginning of this sermon is that you don't need to read the last chapter to know what happens in the last chapter, do we? Considering the cyclical nature of the the failure and the rebellion of God's people in Nehemiah 9, what should we expect to happen with this covenant renewal in Nehemiah 10? In other words, even if the reader doesn't know what's coming next, you know what's coming next. I don't need to read after Nehemiah 10. If I were a betting man, I would bet my last dollar that the Israelites were not able to keep this self-imposed covenant. You know how I know that? Because they've never been able to keep any covenants. Maybe you've experienced the same wrestling with sin in your life, this vicious cycle of rebellion. If you've ever struggled with addiction, you know how difficult it can be to break free from that stronghold on your mind and on your body. Some of you struggle with anger. You know how this is. You blow up at your spouse or your kids, then you calm down and you immediately regret your behavior, rightly so. And what do you do? You make these vows and these promises, I am never going to go back to that place again. I'm never going to react like that again. Lord, I won't do it anymore. And you don't for a few days, maybe a few weeks. But as a dog returns to its vomit, so you return to your sin. You see, we are no different from the Israelites in their cycle of unfaithfulness and sinful rebellion, are we? We struggle with the same kinds of sin over and over again. But praise God, there is an answer to this. The Israelites needed a better covenant, and the one that they made up is not it. They needed a better hero, a better savior than Nehemiah or even than Ezra. They needed a better solution than the exile or even the temple. What they needed is what we have. They needed Jesus Christ. Do you know that the Apostle Paul talks about the same kind of cycle of sin? Romans 7, Paul talks about his struggle with his flesh. In Romans 7, 19, he writes, For I do not do the the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, I keep on doing. You ever feel like that? I want to do good, but I find myself doing evil, and the stuff I don't want to do, I find myself doing. That's that's the cycle of sin that we wrestle with. Now, I, I recognize in Romans 7, there's some question about whether Paul is talking about his life before salvation or after, or whether he's talking about Israel or himself. But the ultimate goal, the ultimate point of that passage he, he gets to is the same no matter what. 
Romans 7, verse 24, Paul says, How wretched a man I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? How can I break this cycle of sin, Paul's saying? You know the answer to that? It's found in the very next verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer to the cycle of sin in Ezra and Nehemiah is Jesus Christ. The people were hopeless to keep this covenant without divine intervention in their lives. The answer to the cycle of sin in our own life is Jesus Christ. How fortunate that God offers grace to humanity when we are hopeless otherwise. So when you look at this passage from the lens of all Scripture, including New Testament, including Jesus, I'm not trying to knock rededicating your life to Christ. That's a really good thing. There is a time and a place for covenant commitments. There's a time and a place for vow renewal ceremonies. There's a time and a place for public professions of faith, for mass accountability to God's word. But we can't do that without recognizing that the only path to success is found in the righteousness of Christ, not ourselves. We are not righteous enough to keep those covenant commitments. We need a Savior who has kept them already. We are going to fail, but Jesus Christ, our righteousness, has not nor ever will he fail. That's what the gospel is all about. Recognizing our sinfulness before the Lord, casting ourselves upon the cross of Christ, and asking for his forgiveness to cover and wash away those sins. It is good for us individually and collectively to take the time to rededicate, to rededicate, to rededicate our lives to the Lord, reflect, repent, renew as you read the word of God. But we do those things remembering that when we yet fail again, and we will yet fail again, our faithful God is here to extend his love and his forgiveness to his broken people. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, wretched humans we are. Sinful humans unable to break this cycle of rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. And yet, in the midst of that cycle, you provide for us hope in a new covenant in Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed for us, whose body was broken for us. And we praise you, Lord, for that gift of forgiveness in the cross. Father, I pray that as we rededicate our lives, even this morning to you, as we think about those areas of fault in our own lives and ask you to come into our hearts and to change those areas, to make us more sanctified, to renew us in holiness, I ask, God, that you would help us not to do these things on our own strength, by our own willpower, but that you would help us to recognize the righteousness of Christ, the justification in him who has done it for us, and that we would realize that the only, the only way we can freely break from this cycle is in you. Lord, I pray that you would break the cycles of sin and rebellion in the hearts of the people here, myself included. I pray for those who don't know you as their Savior that today would be the day that they cast themselves upon the foot of the cross and that you come in and change their lives. I pray for those who do know you as their Savior, that they would recognize your great hand in them 
and that the Spirit of God would help them come out of that cycle, break free from it, experience true freedom in Christ. And when they fail, Lord, may they recognize your hand there too, that you are here to lift us up, to forgive us, and that Christ's righteousness is our own. And it's in that we place our faith. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for being here today. Have a great week.